0: We're back for another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Site. This is uh, officially episode number 49, so we're just one episode away from big number 50. But uh, we got a pretty, uh, pretty big monumental movie to discuss this time around as well, so we are going to be getting into that later. But uh, first, I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my two Dashing co-hosts, both born of German expressionism, and, but in very different ways, uh, <laughs> Dan- Daniel Harper. How are you doing,
1: sir? Doing all right. And I like to think of myself as hyphenating rather than dashing,
0: personally. Oh, okay. Right on. And uh, my other co-host, Paul Romali. How are you doing, sir? Hi. I'm doing well. You sound like a commercial for a 1950s uh, <laughs> of some sort. Yep. Do you have bad stains.
1: Hi, I'm Paul. And what yep. you need, Paul's washing powder.
0: Yep. <laughs> Special washing powder, now with bleach.
2: Yep, I like it.
0: Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, uh, we'll be getting into uh, 1931's M, directed by Fritz Lang here in a little while. But before we do that, we're going to get into our sort of customary, what we've been watching, purchasing, etc., in the last little while. So I'll throw it to you, Daniel, for uh, whatever you've been uh, up to in the last week or so.
1: I watched a couple of movies, one of which was on your um, top uh, list last year, I believe. I saw Turbo Kid in 2015. I know why you love it. Uh, I didn't love it as much as you did. Um, Okay. You know, I I just... The only thing I'm going to say about it really is if you're going to make a uh, giant throwback to uh, the uh, cheapo films made in the early 80s, um, why not make a good one, you know? Um, If I want to watch Solar Babies, I can just watch Solar Babies. I don't have to, you know, watch this... um, Uh, that's a little bit unfair. Um, I I get why this was made. Um, It's kind of a a mixture of those kind of early 80s sci-fi post-apocalyptic Mad Max ripoffs with uh, slasher gore, um, really heavy gore stuff, which I I liked a lot, and then um, basically a mumblecore movie kind of built into the the middle of it, and uh, (laughs) it's the mumblecore aspect that I liked the least. Um, Mumblecore, (laughs) did you say? Yes. Okay, I never heard of that. Yeah, basically that's the uh two protagonists staring forlornly at one another and not actually saying anything intelligent and just uh talking.
2: Was I say that that's me every day with someone.
1: Yeah, pretty much. It's pretty <laughs> much like I, I thought I was watching Paul um at all. Ah. That. Uh, basically the the two leads uh they're not bad in the role. Um certainly uh the uh the uh, the young lady who plays Apple, um I think she's she's kind of on the right mark, but uh, I think ultimately the film just kind of uh suffers whenever we're not either watching uh, really awesome practical lore effects or uh, kind of uh, silly uh, early 80s parody sci-fi stuff. I think everything else just
2: kind of falls by the wayside a little bit.
1: Do you um, think it
2: I, uh, is a little too long? If it was uh, truncated a little bit, it would be better?
1: I mean, I hate to use the too long thing. I mean, I think that you know, if this was an hour, you know, I think that you wouldn't have time for that. I think ultimately it feels padded. But I think ultimately it's like I, I accept that from the early '80s versions of this because they were just doing the best they could and uh, making the film they they wanted to make and just kind of like you just kind of accept that like having 30 minutes of padding is part of what the thing is. For stuff made today, I expect you if you're going to do this, I expect you to bring a little bit more like psychological complexity or at least interest to it. You know, I do think that the ending of the film basically works. I think that I kind of left the film with a kind of pleasant memory, but it's not something I'm ever going to revisit again. So, now that I've shit all over one of your favorite movies. Lately. Yeah, Boom. Well, well, Boom.
0: well, well, Paul, well, Paul uh, so who are we bringing in as our new permanent host? Uh, <laughs> I
2: think we should bring in uh, our, my breast connoisseur, Greg. I think he would be fun.
0: <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I, I can definitely see why people wouldn't like it. Uh, it's, it's It's just one of those things that, one of those movies that strikes me in a certain way and works for me, and I, I can totally understand the criticisms of it, so
2: totally fair. I just, it kind of reminded me of a little bit of that Kung Fury kind of stuff with the 80s kind of chaos mm-hmm. going on, and I think everyone has the kind of same ring that if, if they tried to make that a full-length film, everyone would have just got sick of it, like, you know, 45 minutes into it. I mean, it would have been a little too much, so it was good that that film was short, so people could have just got bombarded with everything, and then it went away, so it was like, ah,
0: yes, good, thank you. Uh, okay, well, I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask myself a new question now. Who are my two new permanent co-hosts?
1: <laughs> well, I do think that uh, Turbo Kid's
2: way better than Kung Fury uh, personally. Definitely, it so. is. Yeah. Uh, I never no saw. so Tur- about- well, I'm not comparing the films, <clears throat> Mister Touchy Lee. I'm not comparing the films, so you know, I just saw pictures of Turbo Kid. And it seems interesting. Well, well, that's more research than you usually do when you're watching movies. So true. It's to you. Thank you. I will never watch that film now because of you. <laughs> All right, Daniel, continue, sir.
1: I also watched uh, – and this is the only other thing I'm going to mention because I did uh, get to do the little intermission thing where I talked about the other like 20 things I watched last week. Um, but I watched a uh, a really good movie that's on my – that may be on my short list for best of the year actually. It's called Mystery Road. This one's also streaming on Netflix. This is a um, kind of a crime film, kind of a western Kind of a character drama. Um, it's actually from Australia. It's an Australian director who's actually um half uh, Aboriginal. so he's he's half black. and the uh, the lead in this film is also, A uh, a black man and uh, the kind of racial politics are, I don't want to say front and center, but they're definitely in the film. You know, the fact that he's uh, from that racial minority is definitely played in the film. It comes from that perspective. It is kind of from that, uh, this world. It's a crime film that's set in this very small town in this very kind of impoverished region of Australia. Um, very rural. Um, it really works as a Western. Um, this one is about two hours long. I can see the criticism of it being too long. Personally, I think it feels just right. I think it needs that little bit of extra flab, that little bit of extra breathing room to sell some of the um, kind of isolation of this region and to sell some of the, uh, the atmosphere of it. Um, it's a slow burn, as you'd call it. Um, I don't want to give away too much more about the plot. I'd actually really like Lee for you to watch this um at some point if you haven't you, already. You've already piqued my interest. I want to watch this. Yeah, time. it's it's streaming on Netflix. It's absolutely worth um your time. I'll, I think I'll just wait until uh, until somebody else sees it and talk about it more because there is some some really interesting stuff going on in the film. It's the sort of film where and and I without giving anything away, casting is destiny. And uh, you'll understand what I mean by that. Just don't look up anything else about the film. Just start watching it. And um, you'll suddenly see a face you recognize. And that character is playing exactly the person you think he is. But not necessarily in the way you might expect. Is it uh, Carrot Top? It It is Carrot Top. How did you know? (laughs) Oh Oh, my God. Good. oh my god like like halfway through it stops being this kind of slow meditation <laughs> on crime in uh, rural Australia and becomes like a, a prop comedy routine like, my god
0: if there it's, if there's if there's one person who if I had to watch them on screen for more than five minutes <laughs> that would make me physically vomit it's got to be carrot Top.
2: I mean,
1: that's, that's it we're watching chairman of the board next week uh, oh god. The I just, I just
2: I just saw that Look on the day chairman of the board.
1: Yep. Oh. <laughs> Psych, we're not actually going to talk about Down of the Dead. We're talking about Chairman of the
2: Board.
0: Okay, Paul, anything uh, you've watched in the last little while?
2: Well, it's it's a little bit different. It's not really a film. Well, it is a film, but it's not a, or, more of a documentary of uh, a man who lived in Alaska by himself. He He moved out in 68, and when he was 51, built his cabin and everything and lived out there. Using only tools that he made and stuff. It's called Alone in the Wilderness. It was actually aired on, in the 90s on PBS, and I bought part one and part two of it because there was an expanded documentary for it. And I've just been watching the living craps out of those two things. I, I paid 60 bucks for them, but I don't think I wasted a single penny. Well. And uh, and it's very it's very motivating. There's not a, there's not a time where I don't watch one of them and get up and need to go stack wood or chop wood or clean the house or do something. And if you if you complain that maybe your life's a little too hard, you watch this. You go no, it's not actually. That's pretty easy. <laughs> it's one of those it's one of those kind of deals. Uh, and then I watched uh, Sundown today with uh, Bruce Campbell and David Carradine. Oh,
0: no, I've I I don't think I've heard of that one.
2: Oh yeah, go check it out. It's a great film.
0: Is it a vampire film or? It
2: is a vampire film. You are very clever. <laughs> you
0: well, I, well, you gave me the two act main actors, and you just gave me the title, and I kind of put two and two together there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was guessing romantic comedy myself, but <laughs> it
1: is kind
2: of like romantic comedy. You uh, did,
0: okay, so so uh, we got Bruce Campbell. He's he's, uh, he's wearing tidy whities David Carradine's in the closet, auto auto erotic asphyxiating <laughs> himself.
2: You're yeah. getting close. It's close. It's actually surprisingly close. You know, Carradine, Carradine
1: plays a man with a chin fetish, you know.
2: Yeah. It was it was shot a couple of years
0: ago in Taiwan or wherever, before, where where David Carradine died. Oh, wait, it's not it's a movie.
1: A, it's, it's actually it's a, a documentary. Film. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what, that's actually what it was. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right.
2: Go Down on Sundown. Yeah, okay. Uh, anything else, Paul? We're going to go with no on that one. All right. Um, I, I did fast-forward M. That counts. So there it, you go. It
0: counts? Yeah, it counts. Yeah. I, I myself, I, uh, I'm waiting for my one purchase I've made in the last little while since I bought that big batch of Italian crime films uh, last <laughs> month. I'm waiting for the original Alien to show up. I, I ordered that, so I'm looking forward to that. That's one of those ones where I should have it. I should have mm-hmm. had it years ago, but it was like, you know, back in the day when we were spoiled and we had DVD stores and mm-hmm. stuff. Why the fuck would I buy stuff I could get anytime when mm-hmm. I'm buying obscure shit and all this rare right, stuff at right, the DVD right. store? And, yeah, that
2: makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. then the
0: DVD store disappeared and I'm
2: like, like, fuck, no. I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I have, gonna, I, I have Aliens 1 and 2 on Laserdisc, but I don't have them on... uh I don't have them on VHS or DVD. Yeah, I actually liked Alien Resurrection way more than I, I thought I would. Number Again, four,
0: uh, I'm going to
2: have to find a new co-host. I, I liked it more than I thought I would. That's, that's <laughs> That's not really a compliment, though, technically.
0: Okay, okay, I'll give you a pass there. Because then Daniel, I, Daniel, and I were discussing this off air. Uh, hmm. How he was like, oh, you didn't, you didn't just buy the whole big uh, Alien anthology set. I was like, no, I don't like the other films. I just want Alien.
2: <laughs> yeah, aliens Aliens-es. is? I
0: don't even like Aliens all that much. No, no. I, I mean, it it just it doesn't work for me because it's just. I mean, it's a good action film. It's a great action film, but. Uh, I don't need it. I'm not I want... really
2: too big into sequels. I mean, obviously, Lee and I know that you know two of the main things that we watched growing up, like um, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, are sequel chaos, but I'm not a big sequel fan. The only sequel that I actually thought I was going to really hate, and that I actually like it, was Predator 2.
0: I like Predator 2, too. I think it's... Because,
2: because Predator 1 is such a great film, as soon as I knew they were making... Part two. I'm like, no, I don't want to watch that crap. You know, and I'm like, oh, I like this film. This is pretty good. Uh, cool.
0: Oh, I think I think Danny Glover is woefully miscast in that film. But yeah, I mean, how,
1: about, how about how about Predator two and RoboCop two? Future episode of uh, they must be destroyed on site.
0: I, I like that. I like that. I like that because I actually like RoboCop <laughs> two as well. So uh, it would be actually be a nice little sort of uh, defense of those two films that are I think are unfairly maligned by mm-hmm. general fan culture. So right.
1: Just don't ask me to defend RoboCop 3. I've never even seen it. Wow. I
2: didn't even know they made RoboCop 3. They they did. It was uh, a
1: piece of shit. Holy fuck.
2: Yeah. It's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> i say don't watch it. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Do not watch that film. No, never
1: never watch it.
2: No, just don't. It didn't. Yeah. I've yeah, seen was the
1: TV
0: it? series, and the TV series is better than RoboCop 3. Oh. Uh-huh. I believe it. Did, and did the you guys TV... watch the new RoboCop movie? The remake, yeah. And you know what? I didn't hate that film. Good, good. But it's, it, I have it, not it, seen that. It, it, has, it has none of the charm or wit or anything of the original <laughs> World Cup. It has no, it's just an action film. It's just an action sci-fi film. A really good one, but it has no meat to it at all. It's just mm-hmm. bullshit. Um, but, uh, I,
2: I was looking through a couple things that I had and seeing some of the remakes of films that are out now, and I'm pretty sure that if I could get away with it, I would punch Michael Bay in the face.
0: <laughs> I, I, I think you'd have to stand in line. But yeah,
2: I noticed that though. <laughs> I'm not I'm not the only one who thinks that.
0: Yeah. Okay, but uh, so yeah, I've got that and it's gonna show up any day now. Probably probably Monday will probably show up. The only thing is, I watched. I was telling Daniel offline. I uh, I had a little mini sort of Jason Statham direct to video marathon kind of. Well, I guess the bank job was actually in theaters, but uh, I'd seen that before, and um, but I I watched for the first time the mechanic which is like a remake of the old Charles Bronson film from the 70s. And it actually wasn't too bad. It was pretty competent. I mean, Jason Statham's really good. Like, just about everything he does, he's actually pretty, really good. He usually just gets in really shitty films. But the mechanic was pretty good, pretty good acting in it. Wasn't a lot of over-the-top bullshit that you usually see in modern action films. It sort of stuck to the original fairly closely. I do kind of nitpick every time I see someone shoot a... Leaking gas from a car and make it explode—that kind of <laughs> pisses me off—and and that's actually kind of central to the ending of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. So I didn't like that, but and also I, I actually kind of don't like the twist at the end of the film where (spoilers) uh, Jason Statham actually survives. Uh, I felt that kind of cheapen the film a bit, but it was it was cool to have Statham in it. Donald Sutherland's in the first fourth of the film, or so. Well, actually, not even that much but uh, it's always nice to see Donald Sutherland in, in something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that's pretty much all I watched. Unless we have any other business, we can uh, move on. The
2: only off. thing that I did pick up is I picked up a 10 a ten compilation of uh, Hitchcock films. Okay. Unfortunately, I, I, I didn't really get the chance to open it and sit down and check them out yet, but as soon as I saw it, I had to have it, <laughs> if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah. So, so is this uh is this like a compilation of like his better known
2: stuff, or is this like his early? I'm thinking more of his uh more uh, lesser known stuff. The only thing on it that I actually when I perused it, because I have a couple different collections, the only one that I could definitely pin out point that I knew was the Rear Window. Okay. There, the rest of the stuff is very unknown to me. So it'd be it'd be interesting to sit down and just take a night and watch, just go through it all and, and check it out.
0: Yeah, because uh, a lot of people don't seem to realize that Hitchcock was making tons of films back in the silent film days. I mean, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of that stuff now is like on the on the sort of Mill Creek sets and stuff. Right. Like a lot of direct, you know, pub, public domain fucking mm-hmm. Hitchcock stuff. Like I've got a handful of shitty. <laughs> Shitty prints of Hitchcock public domain stuff.
2: Right, which is nice right. that it, that that transfers into what we're about to talk about too, with where that you you started in the silent era and you're moving into audio like Hitchcock did.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess we could just segue right into that. Boom. Uh, we... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be talking about M from 1931, directed by Fritz Lang. This is actually his first film with sound in it, after mm-hmm. directing about a dozen or so silent films from about 1921 or so. It was written by Thea von Harbo, who was his wife at the time, uh, soon to be divorced, and we'll talk more about that, I think. Uh, she did most of the script. Lang also had part in the script, and... A lot of this was based on an article by Egon uh, Jakobsen. It stars Peter Lohr as Hans Beckett, Ellen Widman as Frau Beckmann, Inge Landgut as Elsie Beckmann, Otto Winnick as Inspector Carl Lohmann, uh, Theodore Luce as Inspector Gruber, Gustav Grundens as Schränker, Friedrich Nab as Franz, Fritz Odmar as The Cheater, Paul Kemp is the pickpocket with six watches. Theo Lingen is Baron Fanger. And I'm just going to stop right there because I've already... Well you
2: just call him Fingerbanger? Fingerbanger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right there.
0: But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop there because I've already probably incited the Germans to start yeah. yet another world war at that point. Yeah, uh, Daniel, you have, uh, from what I understand, uh, a fairly extensive little uh, synopsis of this one, so I'll let you go.
1: All right. This is M, 1931. The film opens on a scene in which several small children are playing a sing-song game. They make reference to a boogeyman as the camera pans to a washing woman, obviously the mother of one of the young girls. After, after a slice-of-life sequence demonstrating her working-class life, we are introduced to the killer, whom we will later learn is named Hans Beckert, and is portrayed by Peter Lorre in his very first starring role. Beckert's introduction comes as a menacing silhouette against a column containing a reward notice for the unknown murderer, and if all this is sounding incredibly German expressionist to you, you're probably envisioning it properly. Mm-hmm. We soon are enveloped by a sense of oppressive unease with occasional lapses into pure panic, as we see how the city at large has responded to these murders. Lynchings are common, the police are incredibly overworked, and the killer is even sending taunting letters to the newspaper. The cops, in a last ditch effort to find the killer, stage frequent raids on non criminal establishments, which is understandably bad for business for organized crime. Bolstered by our look at their bottom line, the capitalist impulse saves the day, and the mob bosses work together to essentially crowdsource the finding of the killer by enlisting an army of beggars. The strategy pays off, and the murderer is eventually trapped like a caged animal inside a large block office complex. In the biggest set piece of the film, we see an army of professional criminals work to systematically search the area as the panicked Beckert seeks any avenue for escape. In the end, Beckert is captured, but the criminal dragnet leaves behind a single man to be captured by the, as it turns out, not entirely incompetent, police force. Beckert is taken to an abandoned schnapps factory, where he is given defense counsel and put to a kangaroo court in a sequence that more or less defines mob rule, as the members of the criminal community, put out of their work by the increased police presence, lay out not only moral indignation against Beckert, but also that of economic insecurity. Beckett pleads for his life, claiming that he is driven to perform these terrible acts due to factors beyond his control, but mercy is not granted him as the mob seeks to tear him apart. In the end, Beckett is saved, at least for now, by the police, who have discovered the place of the foe trial by clever but probably unethical manipulation of the man left behind in the office complex. The film ends with the woman, whose child was killed by Beckett looking at the camera and pleading with the audience to please, won't someone think of the children.
0: Nice. So yeah, this film does start sort of making mention that there have been killings, Beforehand, apparently, like the latest victim is like the eighth or ninth in in the, in the series. The entire the entire town is sort of gripped in, in fear here, and they make no uh, bones about who the killer is. They show you right off that it's Peter lore He's the killer. That's not. The important thing—it's not a murder mystery. This is actually credited as by a lot of people as being sort of the first sort of uh, crime procedural and uh, serial killer film, essentially. Mm-hmm. Even though even back then the term serial killer did not exist, but right. uh, but this is this is definitely the, the, the sort of genesis of that sort of film genre. Yeah, actually, I'll I'll go over to you first, Paul, and uh, ask what your sort of general opinion of this was.
2: Oh, I, I definitely liked this film. Uh, was it the Hall of the Mountain King? The killer kept on mm-hmm. Hall of yep. Mountain King, and that's how one of the ways the the blind man got him. I like that twist. I definitely in, enjoyed the idea of of hiring the beggars, kind of like you know, little surveillance cameras all over the street, kind of keeping watch. You know, I really did like that. Um, the film overall is really well done. Uh, it's very interesting that Fritz Lang almost didn't do this film. He was very angry at the idea of doing it in. Um, Audio. One of the things that I noticed in the film, I found that out a little bit later after I spoke with a friend, the one thing I noticed in the film that gave it a a different presence, which the remake definitely just blew that out the window, the lack of sound in certain spots where you think it would be cussly and bustly and loud and everything is dead quiet. And it mm. gives it the film a completely different feel. It takes you out of the world that you're in and puts you in back into a different world again. And it's very interesting, especially when the chase sequence is going on. There should have been lots of noise, and there wasn't. It was kind of definitely weird. And Fritz Lang played with silence very well in the film. Yeah, and
0: that was, that was sort of a happy accident as well, because um, two-thirds of this film were shot with sound, uh, but the remaining third was pretty much silent and at the time, a lot of this had to do with the fact that licensing fees for sound equipment were very prohibitive, like very expensive. They were just trying to keep costs down more than anything else, and mm-hmm. Fritz Lang sort of worked around it, and he actually liked how kind of unnerving and how much it kind of focuses you on what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so he just used it to his advantage and, and, made, and made it work. So it,
2: it's, it's very nice to have Peter Lorre as, uh, as the killer to give you the sense of, look, this isn't a giant marauding killer. This isn't a giant this is a guy that you would never expect to do anything. He's just a normal guy. You know what I mean? A small, frail man. Yeah, short little short little round, bug eyed man. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that kind of interesting kind of concept on it. It's a it's a very good film. I definitely would like I would like to buy this one. I noticed I went through my collections and I don't have any of it. I don't have a single volume, uh, copy of it. So I want to know what kind of uh, special editions or anything they have out there. I'd definitely like to pick it up.
0: Well, actually, I'll just move to you, Daniel. What your sort of uh, first thoughts of, of
1: of this are? Well, obviously, it's a piece of shit. I mean, I. Yep. <laughs> I I, understand that. You know, I, I, uh,
2: I will say there's no breast in it, but so, Greg, don't watch. It. <laughs> uh, you know, the
1: hard thing with uh, doing a film like this is uh, it is like, 85 years old. You know, mm-hmm. we've been you know there's only 85 years of the scholarship on this, and when trying to talk about it is. Um, you know, And try to find something new to say about it is, is difficult. It's a masterpiece. Um, one of the uh, things that, that I'm struck by in this film, um, just kind of trying to rewatch it, and I think which Paul puts his finger on having not seen it before, is uh, how much of the uh, artifice of it uh, you actually don't notice by today's standards how much of the kind of technique of the film has just been absorbed into modern cinema. Mm-hmm. to the degree that what was really new and avant-garde at the time is almost invisible today, which is something you find with with uh, quite a few of the kind of old masterpieces. Um, this usually gets on the list of, like, top ten greatest movies ever made. I, I wouldn't have any problem with somebody putting it on that list. I, I echo pretty much everything Paul said. I think that the uh, sequences without sound are really haunting and evocative. Like, when it does go without sound, especially uh, watching it today, if you watch, like, a, a digital version, because it is, I mean, you can watch this, for free on the Internet Archive, like, you you know, it's, a little, it's in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So there's, you can just stream it online. I think a first-time viewer might literally just go, wait a minute, why am I not, is there something wrong with my digital copy? <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> um, we're so used to hearing sound. And at the time, in in 31, I mean, sound movies were only four years old at the time. And so the idea that, you know, at the time, Most talkies were literally just talkies. They just, you know, basically there was this, like, big lumbering microphone that you had to hide behind a potted plant or something, as we see in uh, Singing in the Rain. (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you see, basically that that process of moving the sound with how cumbersome that was, um, and so the idea that we're that we are kind of watching people walk around and talk, and that it does feel very modern and it's staging, and it doesn't feel locked into position where you have to like really pay attention to where a microphone is at all times does speak to uh, Lang's uh, directorial talent. The, the the silent sequences actually worked. I mean, I think two audiences at the time they would have felt right at home. And then the the fact that, like, the leitmotif of Hall of the Mountain King or the, um, the other kind of uh, footsteps and that sort of thing. Um, Lang is definitely doing so interesting things with sound here. Like, at mm-hmm. the time, it would have been like, oh, I'm watching a silent film. You get lulled into that old silent you know kind of idea, and then suddenly the sound just comes back in. It's it's a really skillful use of the technology, really.
0: Like you mentioned, there's a couple technique. There's actually a lot of techniques in this film that is sort of takes for granted now. But uh, at this point, voiceover narration was very very rare in film. This was something that was just being introduced to film at this time, so that's actually kind of it it would probably be kind of jarring even for. audiences at that time because they'd probably be used to sort of title cards in between scenes, right, saying what's going on, saying dialogue. Also, the idea of a musical theme being attached to uh, a character signifying when they're there, from what I understand doing research, this was actually kind of the first time this was ever used in film. So when you get uh, Edward Gregg's uh, Hall of the Mountain King*. Very creepy, too, because he's essentially, you know, sort of nervously kind of whistling that. And actually, that wasn't Peter lore whistling that. That was uh, Fritz Lang, because apparently, uh, apparently Peter Lorre couldn't <laughs> fucking do that to, to save his life. <laughs>
2: I did notice that it, like, a little bit now it didn't look like it matched up well, but that's fine.
0: <laughs> so one kind of interesting thing about this is uh, you don't really see Peter Lorre much on the actual film. Like, he's... He's only in the film for maybe about 10, 15 minutes at the most. Like, his his character really doesn't have a lot of screen time. And I think the film honestly makes a pretty overt insistence of not really giving you a central character. Uh, There really isn't a central character. Like, you do get the police chief... You do get Peter Lorre, you do get the criminals, but it jumps between them all the time, as well as the common people. And I think the film tries to make more of a point of society as a whole going in a certain direction, as opposed to sort of the quest of a certain character or the story of a certain character. Um, Because this is a very thinly veiled critique of Germany at the time. Fritz Lang was essentially kind of a, a socialist Jew in the rising Nazism of Germany... And this is pretty much a critique of what he saw was happening in society at the time. Yeah. And it very it's a, it's a very sort of dour, down look on the not only the common people, but everyone in the police force, everyone in the higher up in government. So he, he's kind of commenting on society as a whole. Actually, I'll probably get more into that, but... Uh, any, any of your guys' thoughts on that sort
2: of i definitely I definitely like their their play on suspicion and fear along uh, with the, with the regular people on the streets every time they see something they don't understand or they suspect they call a policeman and they like when they harass the old man yeah. like I, I mean that those those little things were a mob mentality never underestimate the power of stupid people in number or scared people in number. Or anything like that. You know what I mean? That's, it's a pretty nice uh, play on, uh, on morality, too. I mean, it, it does point the finger at people and say, I'm bad, but you're bad, too. So who's the worst? You know, things like. I mean, it's, there's a lot of playing on different topics that you find in many films that come later. So I definitely think this is a groundbreaker in a lot. Um, when I did watch it, because of the fact that Hall of the Mountain King was the, the, the theme to The Killer, I, it automatically, it maybe this isn't exactly the same kind of concept, but it always it automatically made me think of Jaws. Yeah. How yeah. The, the, the Jaws has its own theme, and you when it happens, you know what's going to come. He's there, you know, that kind of thing. Actually, it was a she, so I said, so, sorry, Jaws, you're a she. <laughs> well, um, but yeah,
0: but yeah, it, it is a sound signature. It is, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Later in the movie, when he's speaking of his problems that he has, one of the things is the, he gets haunted. A lot by the victims, stuff like that, and it automatically made me think of American Werewolf in London. How David Notting is haunted by the people he kills the whole time, and it just makes me think of that. So it, uh, there's a lot of things planted from this film through the the annals of, of, of films afterwards.
0: Yeah, uh, the, this film actually does. Uh, I, I I did I did spot a lot of stuff that it did kind of influence, obviously, but it actually if you look at the uh, IMDb, there is a long fucking list of stuff that this film, like, uh, directly inspires or is referenced uh, by...
2: Like Chairman of the Board.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Carrot top. He made his whole career off M. Um... <laughs> But no, it, it it did like directly influence like films within sort of the same era, like the Third Man and the Lady Killers. Then like up to like 1960, Peeping Tom. There's definitely mm-hmm. like yep. when when you're when you're getting to like the psychosis of a of a killer, is, and that yeah. sort of comes out. And then you can go you can go right up to like Dark City from 98, where you you definitely see a lot, if not thematically. At the very least, uh, image-wise,
1: big, big-time influences from mm-hmm. Fritz Lang in those films. Um, well, Lang, Lang in general as a filmmaker is is basically the the foremost man of the uh, the German Expressionist movement, mm-hmm. which then goes on film noir. Essentially, is German Expressionism just adapted to sort of you know crime, the crime genre, you know, and, mm. and kind of dumbed down slightly based on you know. Don't want to yeah. make a moral judgment, but, you know, like like they're not quite doing the same thing. But, you know, film noir is kind of taking that aesthetic and then putting it into this crime genre. And then also all the stuff that's ever been influenced by film noir in a way is derived directly from him in a lot of ways. I mean, this is the proto-film noir film in
2: mm-hmm. a
1: lot of ways. Like
0: he, he did do several crime films, uh, silent crime films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his previous two films before this, which were both uh, commercial failures, were Metropolis and Frau im Mond, which I think translates to like Woman on the Moon or some, yeah, something uh, something like that.
2: Uh, moon woman,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, Moon woman, something like that. Oh, yeah. um, he moved on. He moved on and did you know this crime film. Because uh, he liked the subject matter, he liked the idea of it. This became his favorite film that he made. When he finally did flee Germany, and he fled Germany like I think two years after Peter Lohr did. Peter Lorre he, he got his ass out of Germany like right after he uh, finished filming this basically, mm-hmm. and became a star in Hollywood. Uh, Fritz Lang fled two years later, I guess it was, and also became a major director in Hollywood doing film noirs and he did a lot of classic film noirs in Hollywood too.
1: Yeah, what I find fascinating and, and I, I've i been not talking about the Nazi stuff just to let you guys in. I I, I can only talk so much about uh, the Nazis really. <laughs> <often>. <laughs> but uh there, there is this uh, kind of interesting uh, bit that I kind of found on the on the Wikipedia page when I was doing some, you know, the cursory research I did for this uh, episode, where uh, Goebbels actually offered Lang, you know, basically, to be the head of the uh, the German film, and or our Ufa, I think he he offered him the head of Ufa. Basically, Lang's like, oh shit, I got to get out of here. Like, if I'm getting offered a a good job, I got to leave. Like, right
2: if now. they notice I'll... me, that's a problem.
1: Yeah yeah and uh essentially it's like well he he was he left a couple months later like he had to wait on his wife or something.
2: Yeah. Uh, my my uh great grandparents came over in 31 and my grandfather was born in 32.
1: His wife
0: who he would divorce shortly after this like he went on to make uh the testament of uh Dr. Mabuse. He he found he discovered his wife apparently in bed with uh uh Indian journalist, uh, East Indian journalist. Like you do. Yeah. And also, the, there's also the fact that uh, she was a member of the Nazi party, which would put, basically put a direct sort of schism yeah. right between the relationship. And he was so opposed to that that, uh, that they, they divorced. He, he left Germany. She stayed on. And she was actually, because not only because of her association with uh, Lang throughout the uh, 20s and 30s, but afterwards, with her association with the Nazi party, was actually the most prominent like female in the film industry in Germany for quite oh. some time. Eh? Yeah. But and and she wrote like a lot of lot of uh, Lang's early stuff as well. So it's mm-hmm. um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah. You
2: know, she is. She she had talent
0: though. No, oh, no, she definitely was very talented, and she she actually was uh, she was actually in prison for a while after the war, mm-hmm. like or at the very least interned somewhere. And then she was released and then resumed her career for a while. She actually, uh, one of her films was re-released in Germany in the 50s, and she actually apparently died right after the premiere of it. Uh, she was outside and had a fall and died, because she was already in poor health at that point. Although, mm-hmm. kind of kind of makes you wonder if maybe someone who wasn't too some, sympathetic with the Nazis maybe kind of pushed her outside of the theater. I don't know. <laughs> You I don't know. Know. I, I I didn't know research into any of the uh, the cases as far as her death but
2: uh, Ooh, hates Nazis Carrot Top
0: that's what I found carrot out top, <laughs> <Definitely> <laughs> Carrot Top definitely on
2: time traveling Carrot Top doesn't
1: he killed her he, he killed, killed her,
2: her. <laughs> <it>. he pushed <laughs> her with those big muscles. on steroids and him. kills the bitch
1: <laughs> <laughs> he used that chairman of the board <laughs> paycheck in order to uh, yeah oh god Go now the
2: Carrot top,
0: Nazi Hunter. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of cool, like, uh, real crime stuff in this that uh, we sort of take for granted now that but we didn't really see in films. Like, we see the inspector's relationship with the criminals here. Uh, by the way, the, the, the inspector Lohman was a character that was carried over into the testament of Dr. Mabuse. So essentially this film actually takes place in the same universe as the testament of Dr. Mabuse which is kind of cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, you see his relationship with the criminals, where it's almost kind of jovial, like he knows all the little local scumbags in the town and stuff like that, and they have this sort of... uh, the sort of rapport with with each other. You see early police science, like early CSI kind of stuff, where the the guy has the big f- uh, fingerprint files up on a big projector and they're going through them monotonously. That's kind of cool. I like that. I like how the uh, the criminal uh, underworld employs the baggers. And this mm-hmm. this sort of uh, coalition of baggers was actually a real thing mm-hmm. in Germany at the time, apparently. So a lot of a lot of stuff in this film was actually Taken from real real life stuff, apparently back when some of these uh some of the serial killers that uh, this is sort of loosely based on were, were doing their stuff back in the twenties, apparently uh, from what I understand in the research I was doing here could be wrong, but uh the criminals in, in the, the the sort of straight I guess criminal uh, elements was actually actively doing this sort of thing, looking for these people to try to get the police off their backs so yeah There, there, there is a lot of real life kind of stuff in this.
2: I love the psychology of a killer as they kind of break it down at the end too. I mean, this is like that's got to be pretty groundbreaking stuff for the time, anyway.
0: Well, yeah, I I think we can. I mean, unless we have anything we need to uh, broadly talk about, I think we can sort of of, uh, move towards like the end of this film and talk about it a bit. Of course, there, there is the scene where Peter Lorre's character is. Finally captured, and he's taken to this uh, abandoned distillery, and he's put in a kangaroo court. This is where it gets to a lot of the meat of the actual uh, of the actual story, where he explains in a really great performance, by the way, like just incredibly good. And I think a lot of people kind of think, oh, it's an old movie, the performances are all kind of silly and theatric and stuff. And it's like, no, this this performance is like really visceral and really works really well. I think where he just. He's finally had... He's just hit his breaking point. He's mm-hmm. been haggard and beaten, and he just starts blurting out that you can't possibly understand what it's like to be me. I can't mm-hmm. help myself. I, I I know I'm a monster, but I can't help it. And what right do you have to judge me? Right. You should hand me over to the police.
2: Mm-hmm. The, uh, the really interesting part is when he's really breaking it down piece by piece, it views over the audience, and now and again, you'll see some people in the room like shaking their heads, like I know what it is. It's it's hard, you know, this and that. But yet the cry, the outcry is, is more is stronger than than the sympathy, if you know what I mean. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: And at the end of the film, in general, to me anyway, because I'm a bastard, in general, is uh, it's like God, I wanna I wanna just tear him to pieces too. I'm for, I'm for it. Screw him. You know what I mean? And, and but at the same time, that's when you that's where it breaks down this whole other barrier of the legal judicial system of just the the lawyers and the courts and the this is alums and and the, how you treat people in certain ways and it just it just it's it just goes overboard with emotion and chaos. It's it's great. The end of the film is great. However, you can't just say that you're you, you can't control yourself and you don't know what you're doing but you're sending letters to the police though so maybe that in in today's court wouldn't hold up very well but like it's just the end of the film it's just got so much going on uh
0: and I'll just I'll just put a couple things out here and then I'll just let you guys uh mull them over here um and I only got
2: this from fast forwarding yeah well there you
0: go <laughs> but yeah the, he does he does send letters to the police but he does want to be caught like he he's one of those killers who realizes he is a monster um you you actually see him like early on in the film making faces in the mirror and I, I sort of took that as him trying to see what everyone else saw in him. Essentially, is that monster really there? W- w- am I really that ugly? So he sends the letters to police because he does want to be caught. And there's there there is well documented serial killers doing this. Like even when they're taunting the police, they secretly do have the desire to be caught. Uh,
2: is- Ted Bundy, for example, yeah. I believe.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think the biggest thing here is they make a point that th- with this kangaroo court that he has no choice in what he does. He he is sick. He is a killer. He kills children. He He cannot control his compulsion. But what is the rest of society's excuse? They actually have a choice. And this mob mentality has come up in like a fever of hatred or whatever where they've basically boiled over to the point where they just want to hang this guy and string him up instead of due process and law he he just he just sort of throws it back at them in their faces that what right do you have to kill me i have no choice in the matter you actually do have a choice you can choose to hand me over to the proper authorities or you can be just as bad as me and that, that there's there's a sort of a duality there with the increasing nazism in the society where He's, I think Lang is explicitly trying to make the point that the common German of the time had a choice. They could have rejected the Nazi Party, but a lot of them didn't. And I think there, I think that is sort of the thinly veiled kind of underlying theme in this film. But uh, that's just my personal thought on it. So I'll let you guys uh, see if you agree or disagree with me there. Daniel.
1: Well, I don't have any thoughts at all about the uh, political meanings of uh of this film. Uh, no, actually, I have lots of thoughts. So, <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> I think there are a lot of different ways to view this. I, I think it's um interesting that uh, I feel like the film actually pulls its punches in a lot of ways. I feel like it's it's um, not nearly as overt. You you say. Uh, it's a film that's set in 1931 Germany and it's about a uh, murderer, a child murderer on the streets of uh, Berlin and uh, the, the public approach to that. And, uh, you know, if you made that film today, it would be this obviously kind of like Nazi allegory. So the fact that this is made in 1931 makes it this like fascinating historical document and I think some of the uh, way that we see all levels of this society – we see this kind of sickness pervading the society, this panic and, uh, against this, uh, this contagion that they see in their, in their midst. It's definitely meant to... Uh, I mean, to, to me, the, the fact that we spend basically the first half hour of the film just seeing the reaction of the different levels of society to this murderer is as much an indictment of the society as the, the kind of final scene. You know, if we were going to rewrite this today... The fact that the that there's never a question about the murderer, about the uh, the fact that uh, Peter Lorre is actually a child murderer, et cetera, et cetera, is probably the one thing that blunts the uh, political angle of it because we know he's guilty. Mm-hmm. So you can view, for instance, oh well, the uh, the German society is after this contagion in their midst, which obviously are the people who are, I mean, the Jews are the contagion, the quote unquote contagion. In the midst of Germany, that the that the people are you know hunting upon, or political enemies or whatever, but in this case, so basically the metaphor is then like the Jews are a child murderer, so that's kind of a, a difficult thing to to you know that's kind of metaphorical uh, unanchoring to some degree, um, which I you know I understand that you can also view Peter Lorre's character himself, Peter Lorre, the Beckert's character, he says there's this sickness inside of me that is making me do this. So Beckert might represent, might be, there's this sickness inside of the German people, for instance, uh-huh. that is making us do these horrible things. You could view it that way. And then the larger society kind of reflects Beckert's inner society, inner, inner kind of struggle, which I think is, is probably the way that I, I like to view it. Um, I have a slightly different read on the on the end of the film, uh, Lee, and I, I would like to, to go into that slightly, which is that the people doing this trial are not the kind of... Uh, official heads of government. The police in this film are shown as being basically competent. Mm -hmm. If the uh, criminals, if the criminal element had not done this dragnet and uh, cornered this guy and then taken them off, uh, the police are literally sitting in the guy's flat. They find the guy, they they sit there, they're waiting on him. If he had just come home the way he was supposed to, they would have caught him. So so the fact that the police are shown as basically competent is an interesting Mm -hmm. element of this film that I think gets lost and a lot of the discussion of it, what we see is that the criminals, the people who elect themselves, who put themselves up above the kind of democratically elected, the, the kind of set-upon authorities, these people run a court without any sense of, like, trying to protect the rights of the accused. They, they're just going to mm-hmm. rip and run from that. In a sense, it is, in the summary I said, this is a literal instantation of mob rule, you know, this is the mob running <laughs> a, a, a legal system. This is what happens when we don't have checks and balances and rights of the accused, and we don't have this is this is literally what happens when people who set themselves up as authorities, instead of being you know restrained by the legal system, what they do with their with the power that they that they seize. And so, in that sense, I think that the Nazis, you know, in this reading, are people who are seizing power from uh, illegally who are illegally seizing power um, from kind of more reasonable, uh, rational authorities who are um, actually the people who should be helping to run society.
0: Yeah, I think, I think I'm in pretty much agreement there. I think you just articulated better than I did, essentially. Because you're right, the police are incredible, actually incredibly competent in this film. They're, they're doing their jobs very well. They're just, you know, <laughs> they're, they're overworked, so it takes them... They're just maybe a half step behind the criminal element who have an advantage by hiring all the beggars on the street and being everywhere at every time, which the police can't do. But yeah, the the head of the criminal syndicate, uh, I guess his nickname is like Safecracker or something like that. Safecracker, he, yeah. Yeah, he, he is, like, the, the, there's no bones about it. He is a Nazi thug. Like, he is presented as a Nazi thug. I guess Lang is making a point that, yeah, these are the people who are trying to take power through... Mob rule and brutality, and then he's showing the common German person getting behind that in the crowd. Essentially, I didn't, I didn't mean to uh, imply that like everybody in the society. I guess, I guess I'd probably worded it properly, was, you know, going in that direction because he does, he does make a point of saying, or, or show, at least showing in the film that uh, the police element were trying to do their jobs. The politicians, for the most part, were scheming to save their own asses. <laughs> they weren't so much interested in, in supporting anything else other than themselves, but, and I guess he's trying to make a point that maybe uh, the rest of the politi- politicians were kind of uh, being lazy and stuck in their ways and weren't seeing the advancing threat of Nazism, perhaps, in their society, I don't know,
1: but... It's a, it's but, a pretty nuanced view, I mean, it, it really yeah. it really has, it's, it's not a, a, there's not one way to straightforwardly read this, you know, I think it, it does have to uh, show a Kind of full featured society. Uh, one other element that I just want to bring up just before we kind of move on is uh, the economic uh, elements of this. Um, the fact that um, in 31 uh, Germany was in the midst of a, a the, the worst part of their Great Depression uh, was, uh-huh. was during this period, and that's very clearly shown. You know, the, the factory is an is an abandoned Schnapps factory, and uh-huh. this is you know people have have been driven to the criminal lifestyle because they don't have jobs anymore, and so they're just stealing from each other. The panic that's in the streets, I mean, the fact that the criminals can't do their job, can't engage in their criminal activity and make money because they're being rousted by the police because of this murderer, it's a completely reasonable thing for them to do because otherwise they're going to starve. You know, um, mm-hmm. you see kind of the higher criminals who are kind of using that, but the fact that there is an army of beggars on the street that you can enlist for a few you know, for a few pennies to, to go and hunt this guy down is uh, itself an indictment of the society at large and of the
2: Well yeah, they, I mean they, they, it was number one reason why, you know, they were saying we are we are crumbling and it's because of we needed a scapegoat. It's these guys. If you can help me get rid of these guys we can make Germany great again. And that was the you know, desperation and fear mentality that rounded everybody up to cause the problem in the first place. I did like the dualistic cat and mouse kind of chase, you know, between the two groups trying to get him though. That was pretty good. I liked that a lot.
0: Yeah, it, it works really. It, it works very good on a lot of levels. Like it works very good as a straight up crime procedural. I mean, it, as as sort of a suspense film, it works very well. Like where they're tracking him in the building, it is very suspenseful, and you actually kind mm-hmm. of feel sorry for Peter Laurie's character, where he's being hounded down. And you're right, it, it does show Germany in very dire straits. Uh, everything looks dingy and dirty. The streets, even the wide ones, the way he shoots this film, they look kind of cramped, claustrophobic. Going back to where it's silence, and then it comes back to sound, the scene where Peter Laurie's character is tagged with the M on his coat and he's fleeing from the criminals, that's all in silence. And then it picks up back in sound after he escapes from the streets and gets into a building, essentially. And mm-hmm. it's very tense and very well done. And it feels very claustrophobic. And you can see it you, you, you can see it come right out of Laurie's performance. He is just sweating and nervous and jittery. And you can feel as you can feel it, the walls closing in on him just through his physical performance alone. There is uh, one scene in a bar; it's everything is dingy and dirty, and uh, it does not look good at all. So it really does speak to the poverty of the place. And there's I, that I can,
1: long tracking shot that I, I think is one of the greatest shots in the film that, that kind of mm-hmm. goes through that whole like seedy, dingy, underbelly establishment. Um, I yeah, like yeah. that a lot.
2: It passes and, through the tables.
0: And you know what? I think that also speaks to the uh, sort of rapport that the inspector has with the people because the inspector realizes that a lot of these people that are now sort of intertwined with this criminal element are not necessarily bad people. They're just in really dire circumstances. So that's kind of why, like, he knows these people. He probably knew these people before they sort of fell into this kind of depression and stuff.
2: Got a so,
0: yeah. So, I mean, there there is a kind of, like, the Inspector has a... He, he is actually, like, very sympathetic to, like, a lot of these people, and he's trying to do well, and at the same time, he's got to sort of balance the fact that he's kind of looked down as the enemy at the same time, and I, I really like it. It's, it's very subtle, but it's very well done, and, I mean, there, there's nothing that I'm not impressed by in this film. Like, <laughs> it's one of those films that uh, it lives up to the hype, you know like there there there's really not much I can say i I can't really think of anything major I'd even point out that I can go how many
1: about. how many pieces of art in general, not just films but how many pieces of art in general hold up after eighty five years
0: yeah I mean this, this is smart. this is just a really smart film and really smartly made and it was smart for Fritz Lang to make it. Not necessarily so overly advert that uh, he would be killed for it, you know? I mean... (laughs) I suspect he pushed it about as far as he could. Uh, It feels that way. They banned the film in 34. So, I mean, you know, within a couple years, this film was gone from the public for quite a while. Mm -hmm. There were shitty, like, 98-minute prints and stuff floating around for the longest time. Uh, I think it wasn't until, like, around after the remake, which we'll be talking about here soon, that it really sort of started coming to prominence again, where people started seeing it again. This film is now widely available, not only because it's public domain, but because you can get it in really good versions. The 110-minute restored version, which is still missing some stuff. Like, there, there is a couple missing scenes. There, There is a... There is a well-known missing scene in this of a sort of prank call to the police of someone trying to confess of being the murderer who is actually not the murderer. So mm-hmm. there's even a bit of a smart, even smarter little kind of look at how some people react to a killer on, on the large uh, on the loose or whatever. You know, all these fake calls into the police. I did it. I did it. I'm a killer. You know, like trying to gain fame off of a actual killer. This uh, was released. I have the. And I paid a pretty penny for it too, but the uh, Criterion DVD from 2005, which is the the best restored version, essentially 110 minutes, which there there really isn't any other version that's longer than that, and it was released, I believe, in 2010 or so for Blu-ray, so you you can get it and. There's a couple different Blu-rays out there, not just Criterion, but uh, it is out there. Honestly, and I think we'll get into it uh, here in a minute, but the only special feature that is lacking on this is actually the remake from 51. That Mm -hmm. should be on this. Uh, Criterion released The Killers, and they had the remake on that as a special feature, essentially. Mm -hmm. Why not do it with fucking... The remake. The,
2: the one thing I could say before you go move on, I you know, I didn't really talk about the ending a little bit, but the thing that, that you guys didn't mention because you looked into it into a different aspect, into a different light, and you were looking more into the the Juden population of Germany at the time and, and coinciding with that, uh, one of the things that I noticed in the film that I got out of it is the dualistic aspects of everything and he wanted to keep you on both sides of the fences the whole time. And I believe that is number one reason why it was a child killer because it plays with our senses a little bit more than just a woman murderer or just a random murderer. He keeps you on the side of the police and the side of the mob at the same time. There's no one time when I felt I was on one side or the other because you're fighting for the idea of civility and justice. But at the same time, you hurt inside because as a father, I know these things and I would kill anyone who hurt my kid. Mm-hmm. I'd, they would never go to a policeman. I would kill them. Well, I, th- I think that, that goes... That, that is very polarizing in this film.
0: Yeah, well, I, th- I think that just sort of speaks back to what I was sort of mentioning there, where there is no real main character in this film, where it I think it presents all the sides kind of equally throughout the film to a mm-hmm. certain degree. So it it doesn't try to... Doesn't try to give you a, like a leading man to garner your sympathy with. Where You're this always, is-
2: I was bouncing back the whole time between the two, you know, uh, even when the police were killing themselves in a room filled with smoke. <laughs> that <laughs> was the funniest scene when I, the the only reason I I finally worked out that that was not the same meeting at the same time because it took me a little bit was one room was literally like there was a bonfire in the middle of it.
0: Well yeah other... that that was a subtle cut, wasn't it like where it, it, yeah, cut between it was the police very subtle and cut. it cut between yeah. the like the officials and the police and stuff and the actual criminals planning to capture mm-hmm. this
2: guy Yeah, the like only reason I finally got I worked out very quickly though, but everyone in the police was smoking something, and the room was filling with smoke more and more every second, and I'm like that is hilarious yeah.
0: so I, I think I think. We all are pretty much in agreement here, yeah, and uh, I think it's pretty pretty obvious that we all love this film. We think it's pretty yeah. fucking great. Do you want to start off talking about the uh, remake there, Daniel, since you actually kind of introduced us to it? Because I was not aware that this existed. So.
1: Sure. Uh, I actually wasn't either. I was uh, doing, again, my kind of cursory research on this film. Actually, I I do want to uh, just... One more thing I'll say about the mm-hmm. original, just is that the, uh, the, the title, the full title is actually M, A City Looks for a Murderer. And you keep you, you know, you're kind of pointing out that there's not a a lead in this film. It's about the city, it's about this oppressive environment. It's about society. It's about this, yeah, it's about society. And I think that that's, that's the key thing that we keep mm-hmm. kind of coming back to There's not a lead in this film. there's an antagonist, but there's no real protagonist.
2: So well even um, even at the end of the film what made me so angry was like the, the, I got this weird vibe of you know it's no one's fault. You know what I mean? They never put the blame on the murderer the whole time. No, and it gave that that society kind of view of, no, you don't have to take personal responsibility for your ability, for your for your actions. It's not your fault. Don't worry about it. Oh, we'll just put you away or this or that. It just makes even the end that you know we it's not going to help anything. We need to you know people need to take care better care of their children. I'm like, it's the parents' fault that the murderer killed them. I what the hell's wrong with you? You know, and I just got I left angry. I left happy because the film is very very good. I left angry at the same time.
0: Well, I d I, I don't think I don't think honestly the film places blame on anyone. I think it makes a point that it's so nuanced that you can't <laughs> you actually have to make up your mind on your own on, on who you think is in the right or in the wrong, or at least in, in the middle somewhere, right?
2: Well, it's I very f- nice I feel like, a very nice
1: film. A film that makes your brain work that much is very nice. I feel like and and here's where I'm of two minds about this, and I and I don't know the answer to this, because lane can't possibly i mean today in in 2016 we don't even have you know the idea of like having to tell parents to watch their children is almost like comical like like mm. this is not something and so you do kind of go in 31, was this something that, that people were, like, concerned about? You know, is this, like, is this like kind of a cultural... Is, I mean, was there this epidemic of, like, parents essentially not paying attention to their kids, and their kids were getting hurt?
2: Well, um, the, other, the other side, I mean, we had a very bad population, you know, at the... I mean, we met in the 30s, but in America and in other places, you know, the kids were going to the workshops at, you know, 8. You know what I mean? We've, I mean, yeah, there yeah, was yeah. That, that very bad part of, of, of society there. Well, where, I... I the, I, I the think other
1: side, the other side would be maybe the lesson is so obvious. Maybe it's like parents, take care of your children.
2: You know, Dumb it's ass. a little bit
1: like, well, like the, maybe the point is to kind of give this like very obvious reading for the censors for like the moral busybodies who are going to – so that they would ignore the – much more complex and nuanced political meaning that was actually going on underneath. Oh uh, well, like a little bit like a little bit like ending the film and going like, and remember, kids, don't smoke. You know, like,
0: not right. I, I've always sort of, I've always sort of taken it as a parents look out for your kids as a metaphor of common German people be aware of your surroundings and what is actually happening in your society right now. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that, that's what I took it as because. Yeah. Throughout the whole film, you see the subtext of, this is the way German society is going. Uh, Nazism is on the rise. I always felt it was a very subtle way of saying they're using the look out for your kids as a metaphor for actually look out at what is happening to your society yeah. and do something.
2: Children, children are the future, and you're ruining the future by by brainwashing them into this evil. Well,
0: no, no, not, not even that. Like honestly, I think the the whole look out for your kids thing wasn't necessarily necessarily a problem. Uh, I, I, I just think it was... Uh, so Lee sort of, is
2: fine with brainwashing them into an evil system. No, no, no. I here's, like
0: it. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying it was a smokescreen for the <laughs> smoke underlying theme of people that you do not want to be taking power right now are taking power and you're not paying right. attention to it. You're not, not looking at it. Yeah, it's, it's a metaphor for you're not watching your children, you're not watching these people around you who are yeah. taking power... And are going to ruin society. Well,
2: and while people are scared because of an Ebola outbreak, everything goes to shit around you because you're not paying attention. Well, no, that's that. That's recently. Never mind. Sorry.
1: Yeah.
0: But I don't know. That's, that's just my take on it. But uh, no, I, uh, I
1: like that take. It reminds me a little bit of um, Kurosawa's Stray Dog, where uh, mm-hmm. the there's this very explicit message of uh, this is at the end of the war, obviously. So this is you yeah. know, almost 20 years later, mm-hmm. um, and this is. Uh, you know, Kurosawa makes a point of, you know, saying these children are the future of Japanese society, these children. So we need to put our resources into making them grow to be better people. And, mm-hmm. like, better people than we were, essentially, is kind of what the film would argue in some God, ways. Right. Only only here in M, we're getting it at the beginning. We're getting mm-hmm. before this comes up and, like, you guys, things are fucked up right now. Think of your kids. Let's not go into this horrible, horrible a totalitarian state, and then uh, nobody listened. That was and no one listened, and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. If and, people and, would listen, if people would listen to M, you know, then uh. <laughs>
0: and and we should we should do Stray Dog at some point. But I will say Stray Dog definitely deals with basically a displaced generation of Japanese after the war, and it's like we have to deal with the fact that our society has been dramatically changed by this war. Like we we've actually like for the most part. The the Japanese populace was basically just thrusted out of the Middle Ages because I mean they were they were a very technologically advanced society in World War II like to a certain extent A majority of their populace was still living in like uh, feudal Japanese conditions to a certain certain degree and mm-hmm. it was like a big massive change where all of a sudden they had the Americans coming in uh, restructuring their society driving the society to a certain direction and you had all these war veterans and scarred uh, traumatized people coming back into society and I'm not uh, I'm just going to shut up now because we need to talk about that movie <laughs> at some point but uh, back to 1951's M there Daniel uh, continue sure. on
1: sorry I, I completely got got a sidetracked in the middle of a the sentence there but uh, yeah so yeah. in my cursory research for uh, the 31 M I, I'd always kind of thought like there is this there is this uh question, you know, in in terms of like how do we criticize these things? How do we talk about artifacts from other cultures? Like is there do we take the new critical approach where we look at these things with fresh eyes and try to interpret the art as it exists and what it means to us and kinda have a personal interpretation of it, or should we view it as something that is um Based in a, in a particular time and place, and I think uh, Lang's *M* is pretty much the like epitome of like this is a film that you cannot ever divorce from its time and place. Like, uh-huh. in order to understand this film, you have to understand that it was made in 1931 and in the rise of Nazism. Like, that's the only way to understand this film. And then you go, well, what would this film look like if it wasn't made during that time? You know, what what would the kind of ordinary quote unquote version of this film look like? And then it turned out it was made. Twenty years later, there was an American version. There was an American remake, and I and I found that, and I thought, well, I have to watch this just just to see. And uh, it turns out I didn't write a full plot summary because what's the point of writing the same plot summary yeah. twice? Um, it's largely the same film. There are subtle differences, which I, I th- well, there are some profound differences, but um, basically it's uh, the same film, and it just turns into a. Pretty effective little crime film. Like really it, it's good. not like it, uh, the fifty one version is is really well done. I mean, I was kind of expected to watch ten minutes of it and turn it off because it was a piece of shit, and it, it isn't at all. Um, mm-hmm. I said to you, I said to you uh, off air, you know, if the thirty one version didn't exist and all we had was this version, you'd kind of remember it as like this little, you know. Underrated noir classic. Yeah, um, it's right. only the fact that the that the original exists and it's such this monument of cinema that the I think the 51 version is well scary. in the
2: in the 51 version with the breakdown of the criminal at the end. I mean that harkens back to you know misguided hate from a mother when it breaks down the psychosis and you see that. I mean I don't know if that's the first film that really broke that down, but you see that in countless films after that. Oh yeah. Well no. Well oh, yeah okay. no.
0: This is this is pre Psycho like this is yeah. before Norman Bates.
1: Like this, this is this, nine man. years before Psycho.
0: Yeah this is uh, I think the most other than the ending the biggest difference in this is this focuses on the killer a lot more like you see this guy all the time in the film it follows him mm-hmm. and you see psychosis a lot more like with the taking of the the shoot the the ties for the shoes and stuff the mm-hmm. shoestrings. And that stuff, like he, it's it's much more on the nose that you know, this guy is a psychotic. It's a lot more like
1: serial killer movie. You know, yes. Lighting. Yeah.
0: You know. I kind of I kind of like that they sort of went that direction with this because I mean you're up against M, you're up against Peter Laurie's, uh performance, and it's like you can't really reproduce that, so you gotta put a different angle on it, and I think they did a really great job.
2: I mean I, I do like the killer's uh, breakdown in 50 in 51 as well I mean it, it it does get very emotional too I mean it doesn't it doesn't try to mirror I don't know it does it does a very good job as well it just as you said it takes a completely different angle and the breaking down of psychosis why he's like that it's very good and it does harken back to millions of films after that I notice it does have more of that Yankee GI music in it though so you get you don't get the silence like you do in the in the 31.
0: Well, this, this movie is, is definitely an American movie, but I think it's pretty uh, remarkable how easily they transition the story from, like, 1930s Germany to 1950s-era USA, where you have the whole sort of uh, uh, host of un-American activities committee thing going on, which is sort of the big thing here. Like, that basically takes, place, takes the place of the Nazism of uh, the, of the uh, original...
2: Later, we still get McCarthyism, and it still blackballs people for nothing, and so. And, <laughs> they didn't well, they're, either.
0: well, they're they're talking about yeah, they're talking about the uh, sort of communism McCarthyism thing, yeah, uh, which is actually something that actually kind of directly affected this film. This film kind of dropped out of out of the fucking uh, public's eye. Just after it was released, essentially, that's just because that's why that's one of the reasons why no one knows about this film. It was just kind of shit canned, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, like some of the people involved in the production of this were actually, you know, part of were actually victims of the House of Un-American Activities Committee. So, um, yeah, the uh, the
1: director Joseph Losey actually had to uh, leave the country um, because he was being hounded by by Huac at, at that point, um, which mm-hmm. is. Uh, which is a shame. Actually, yeah. um, I did some uh, research. I, I did a, a, j- again, just looking into this film a little bit. The director had previously directed a, a few years earlier a children's like comedy musical film called The Boy with Green Hair, um, <laughs> which is uh, apparently about a. Uh, essentially, it's that it's stood a metaphor for communism. Because oh, yeah. he wakes up one morning and he has green hair and everybody's making fun of him and like ostracizing him and everything. And uh, I'm i trying to track that down and and, and watch it so I'll uh, maybe I'll like, give you guys a little uh,
2: view of it uh, next week. But nice. Kind of strange that Joseph uh, Loosely gets basically the same treatment that Fritz Lang got as well. Mm, well he, he was getting, you know, he was like, okay, I gotta get the fuck out of here. If you know what I mean. That, I mean that's strange. Well, you know, well, when
1: you when, you when you have political powers who are uh, using authoritarian rule to, uh, get yeah. rid of it, they disagree with. Um, it, did, right. it kind That's of doesn't matter, you know. Um,
0: yeah, there, there's there's a lot of that same mob mentality here with with the sort of McCarthyism thing. Uh, I mean, you know, you had you had fucking assholes like Ra- Ronald Reagan, fucking testifying on his fellow actors and stuff. Oh yeah, he's a communist. We should fucking get him out of the fucking country or whatever. Like that shit was going on, but also it's kind of interesting how this one sort of incorporates sort of modern stuff. Like it uses the sort of, uh, general panic and mob mentality. Uh, it sort of makes a sort of correlation between that and television, how sort of mass media was kind of like infecting the country at that Mm -hmm. time. Yep. So you, you see a lot of that, um, I mean, there, there's there's a little exchange uh, where police are asking certain witnesses, like, "Did you see him?" And like the woman's like colorblind, and it's like, "I don't know what the color was." Uh, maybe it was red. What are you, a commie?
1: <laughs> well, what's funny, that scene is mirrored from one in the original, um, but mm-hmm. then they, they had that, that kind of communist angle to it, um, to to the remake. Uh, one of the biggest differences uh, in the film is the fact that the uh, in the 51 version, the uh, killer actually uh, has a young girl with him while he's running from the, the criminal, the, uh, mm-hmm. the dragon that's coming after him. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're not criminals, they're just uh, kind of... They're, they're not beggars, they're actually uh, just foot soldiers in the in the criminal organizations, I guess, in the remake. So that's uh, the difference. But the fact that he has a young girl with him, and uh, hes you're kind of actively thinking, what's he going to do to this girl while he's... Yeah,
0: I I thought he was going um, to... I, I was actually wondering, is this film going to go there? Is he going to kill her? And mm-hmm. when they break into the room, are they going to see, like, the girl's legs poking out from, like, a behind a table or something? Like... I was like, wow, if they went that there's far. A, there's a like, definite,
1: wow. there's a definite dread to that. I mean, you know, it definitely, it definitely pushes a lot harder on that. I mean, you know, well, in the original, I mean, while we know that uh, Lori is the, the murderer and we are rightfully supposed to think of him in terrible ways, uh, I think that the remake pushes a lot harder on that. Uh, this is a bad guy. It's good that we're coming yeah. after him, You're right? Um, which again, kind of then plays up that. Well, and then he's being hounded by, you know. It's essentially this is this metaphor for the, you know, kind of communist witch hunts and that sort of thing. I mean, it would be interesting to see. Watching the '51 version, I started thinking, I wish this has been a film that had been remade every 20 years. Like, imagine what the 1971 version would have been like. It would have been like about the hunt for hippies, you know. Yeah. In '91, it would have been about like crack cocaine, you know. In 2001, it it would have been on.
2: There would at least would have been an orgy in it, for God's sakes. Sure,
1: sure. <laughs> uh, you know, in two thousand one, t- imagine Jess Franco directing M in
2: 1978. Yeah, no, that's,
0: no talking about? <laughs> Solidad yeah, oh, well, I mean, Miranda. After two thousand,
2: or... it would be the Islamophobia, which it is now, which is actually. Well, you know that.
0: that. I, I, I think that I think if it was Jess Franco doing it, it would, it would be Solidad Miranda walking around naked for most of the film. it's like, no, oh no. yeah, we we, yeah. we got a plot yeah, here somewhere.
2: That's the question with his films. Is it pre- or post-Miranda? I mean, that's the yeah. question. That's the question, yeah. yeah. The question, yeah. Uh, but it is interesting to, to kind of think about,
1: like, if this had been a movie that really was remade every every couple of decades, you know, what, Which, what kind of thing? Which
2: be, like, in a way, because that would be so pertinent that it almost should be. Yeah,
1: I mean, I would, I would love to see it. It's funny how not terrible the 51 version is. You mm-hmm. know, I don't have a lot to say about it because I feel like we kind of covered a lot of this in the 31 version, but uh, it, it's worth tracking down if you've only seen the original. I mean, if you're only gonna watch one, watch the original, no question. Yeah. But uh, the 51 version is absolutely worth watching. It's not a terrible movie at all. No, it, it's um, shot. In it's fact, shot it's quite really? good.
0: It's shot really well, too. Like, looking at how it's shot with, like, seeing the city and stuff, like, it looks really great. The sequence uh, where they're chasing the kill in the building, in this case they use the Bradbury building, which it was later used for Blade Runner as well. It's got kind of like a French architecture to it, which is very uh, uh, very eye-catching. It's got those sort of, like, sort of Z form kind of fucking uh, sharp angle staircases and stuff going up and everything looks really cool. It's it's kind of interesting like during the time that this was done, this was also produced by Seymour Nebenzahl, uh who did the, who produced the original. And during this time he actually re-released M, although it was like I think in the sort of uh, edited form like 98 minutes where the fuck it was. And uh, it was changed a lot. Like they changed like the title sequence to the original. They changed the music in some cases, like they uh instead of just having uh uh Peter Laurie uh whistle in the Hall of the Mountain King, they actually had it in the soundtrack. And then they actually had like a uh like a happy ending and they removed all the stuff that made the government look like a bunch of foolish buffoons.
2: Mm.
0: So it was definitely it was definitely catered to like an American audience.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a lot of times I mean if you if you don't watch this and you don't look into it it's not really, you know, one of those films that if a, per- if a person isn't looking for it, they might not notice that it's all about the government. I'm, I mean, that's the – I mean, I don't know a lot of people that wouldn't get little bits of it, but there are some people I'm assuming that would watch this film and not – it was just the people after a child murderer, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And you, you – because you automatically identify, well, this isn't the guy who just believes in something. This is a guy who kills kids, so he's a bad guy. We've got to go after him. And go kill him, you know what I mean? And then, then you really have to talk more about what's right and what's wrong near the end of the film. So even if you're not looking for political banter, you still have, you still have a morality issue by the end of it where you have to pick and choose, which is no matter who you are, you have to watch this film and you have to look into yourself at some point in time.
0: Well, it's also also interesting. Uh, definitely, one big difference in the remake: the the head of the criminal syndicate in the original was definitely presented like as an overt Nazi. Uh, mm-hmm. Here, the criminals are just pre- presented as straight up American gangsters. They're they're not presented as they're, as, they're as, practically
1: they're, businessmen. Like yeah. they're, they're they're really it's. I mean. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and uh, also, hey, uh, Raymond Burr as the sort of raspy-voiced heavy guy, the enforcer in the gang. I I, I like that. I, I like finding out that he was in this. They actually changed the story up at the end to the point where it's actually the government officials in collaboration with the criminals who are the actual villains in this one, like the, the mayor or whatever who's trying to improve his, uh, stand, his standing in the political field. So that that's where the sort of McCarthyism thing comes down, where essentially that's what McCarthy was doing as well, sort of like garnering power and prestige in the public eye with his fucking bullshit. So they, they make a point of that with this sort of buffoonish mayor who is trying to uh, use machinations and uh, uh, improve his public image by capturing this criminal and... Or this killer or whatever and stuff. There, there's definitely some overt changes there, as well as the uh, defense attorney for for the killer in the end.
1: Yeah, because he's basically just a drunk, and he's and he's not uh, in, in the original. The the defense attorney is actually kind of trying to get the guy yeah. off. I mean, he's and and here he's he's very reluctant. He's like, no, no, no. I'm you know, and that can speak to the ineffectualness of the uh, of the court systems in a way. Well,
0: you know, I I think I think. I think deep down, like maybe I was just reading too much into this character, but I was watching him, and he becomes like a central character in the last act, like in the last yeah. 15 minutes of the film. or So he all of a sudden <laughs> becomes a central character. I kind of felt that this guy, deep down, was like the only sort of uh, idealist of in the whole picture. It kind of felt like he was kind of a sort of a, a metaphor for like the sort of idealist and the sort of. Oppressive, restrictive oh, 1950s no, Amer- American society being beaten down by the by the the system he was part of. In the end, you know, he, he's he's beaten down to the point where he becomes a drunk. And then when he finally tries one last grasp of trying to you know be a good person, he gets shot for it. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, you know. So uh, I I, th- I I thought. I thought there were some pretty, really interesting and smart differences made it's in the
2: Very interesting that you mentioned that because I was watching the original thinking the guy was going to get killed the whole time for trying to stand up for the guy. That was very interesting. One of the more uh, principled per- people in the film, I love his line that, You cannot silence me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, this will not silence me. And he keeps going. And it's like, You can't silence justice. I mean, that kind of that mentality. It's pretty interesting. Uh, because at first, when I saw the guy, uh, his just defense, I thought it would be more of a joke, more of a, mm-hmm. hey, yeah, um, you gonna kill him yet? I mean, one of those kind of kind of things. And it turned out he was his just basis of uh, of saving the person was it just really weird. It's one of the ones that that that's one of the things that gives you it's the end so much emotion besides Peter's rant, yeah. and, uh, and of course the the rant in the fifty one version as well.
0: Is also really well done. Like he, he doesn't try to outdo Peter Laurie, uh, but he does a great job
1: at the same mm-hmm. time. He does. He, he, he brings a, he well. makes a
2: much more quiet, like
1: uh, resigned, almost uh, mm-hmm. attitude towards it, which I think
2: is well. It's true. great because it shows you that that I'm not a monster. I'm a nor- I'm a quiet, resigned, you know, weak human. But I do these things anyway. It's it's and, and that's really the scary part. That's what the the Norman Bates character was so well in Psycho. Mm. You know, he's not Jason Voorhees. <laughs> you know what I mean? That kind of yeah. mentality. He's just yeah, the, yeah. Boy, the boy next door. And I think they. I think uh, Psycho took a lot from that. Yeah, like
0: I I was I was watching this. I was thinking like, there's a lot of Norman Bates there. Like it, there's only like one shot where you see him in his apartment, and you see that framed picture of his mother. And he's like, I assume that's his mother, and yeah. you know he's he's pulling at the he's pulling at the uh, the the shoe ties, and then eventually he like chops the head off of that, uh, <laughs> strangles the head off of that clay doll he has of a little girl, and yeah, yeah
1: that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't just a little bit too obvious.
0: Yeah, both feels kind of gimmicky, but at the same time I like it where. Instead of doing the Hall of the Mountain King whistling, he's like playing a little pipe and is like kind of a pied piper, almost kind of motif going on there. I thought it didn't do anything to disgrace the original. Like it it stands up on its own. It it makes a good, a lot of good points on its own that the original film made in its time, and I think it was one of the more effective examples of a remake doing it right. Even if Criterion couldn't restore it, like if they couldn't find a good print. It should have still stuck it on like the release for M because it's a really good counterpiece to the original.
1: So watch them both. Check them both out.
0: I think the fifty, the fifty one is on YouTube somewhere, isn't it? I'm pretty sure
2: it is. And they're easy to spell.
0: Uh, I, I know the original is on YouTube at least, and you can find pretty good prints on YouTube. There's like three or four versions of it on YouTube.
2: Yeah, and, there's at least two.
0: Yeah, and like I said, you can get the super cleaned up Blu-ray version from Criterion at this point. Uh, if you want to pay out the ass, you can fucking get the DVD like I did. Uh, at this point, it's almost like I should I should upgrade to a fucking Blu-ray player because I'm being punished for seeking out DVDs at this point. Can't uh, be all your
2: DVDs, Lee.
0: Yeah, no, it's not going to happen, Paul.
2: Ah.
0: Yeah. Can't be all your VHSs, Paul. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Yeah, right. You, you would murder me before I you're fucking you. So, you're so it. crazy. Maybe you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, so I, I think we pretty much said all we need to say about these films. Uh, yeah. They're both one out of tens. Yeah. No, I actually, I I would actually rate both of these as excellent fucking films, and actually kind of classics of their era. Honestly, like the 1951 is. Just kind of a woefully <laughs> forgotten classic of its era that should be seen by more people, I think. And, uh, yeah, uh, Daniel, tell us about your Doctor Who podcast.
1: Absolutely. Sorry, I was actually just looking to see if the 1951 version of M was available anywhere. And yeah. uh, you can buy a DVD for $6 on Amazon. Uh, they do there it. are other ways to get it, but... Uh, you know there is a DVD available on Amazon.
0: Yeah, it probably it probably looks exactly the same as the tour <laughs> you found us so There you go.
1: Yeah, the the uh less legal way that I found it. So um, you know, enjoy that too. Um, yeah. So if you do want to uh, listen to me talk with my wife about uh old science fiction television show, you should uh, check us out on uh We Space Man a Doctor Who love story because we talk about Doctor Who and um, we're up to the 80s for the Fifth Doctor era. And uh, Lee was supposed to be on the next episode, but scheduling didn't allow that yeah. recording to happen in quite the same way. But we're going to get him on soon, and we'll figure it out. But I think the next episode I'm going to put up will be our Series 9 uh, recap. So uh, look forward to that. Right on. And uh, we have a guest for that, too. So. Oh, cool. That's Oy Spaceman, oyspaceman.libsid.com. Check it out. Yeah. Paul, where
0: can people find you on the old interwebs?
1: you like hearing beer reviews?
0: Check
2: me out on P.A. Brew News, YouTube, and Facebook. Bye. Now with more bleach. Now with more bleach.
0: Now with less communism.
2: <laughs> Never. <laughs> Con- consume, obey.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's another film we'll have to fucking do at some point. Yeah, so uh, the trailer will tell you where to go. Uh, we're on iTunes. Please go to fucking iTunes, subscribe to us, leave us a five-star reading, Tell us how much we suck or tell much how, how much you love us, but leave us a five-star rating at the same time. That'll be great because that'll get us out to more people. And uh, that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, leave us comments and questions. Leave us suggestions for films you want us to review because we're definitely open to that. Like, I think if you've been following this podcast for any amount of time now, you see that we're pretty varied in the stuff we watch. So uh, it's not all just horror. It's not all just this or that. We Sadly. We <laughs> yeah. Paul would just love it to be all horror, but but I mean, if you want to suggest horror films, that would make Paul very happy. And if you want to make Paul happy, do it. Uh, yeah, but you you can find the contact info on our Podbean site. Uh, go there, and uh, yeah, next week is going to, be, or at least at, at the very least, the next episode, whenever we do it. it, should be next week. Dawn of the Dead from 1978, going to be the big fucking 50th episode blowout. Uh, we're gonna blow our loads. It's gonna be all downhill from there uh mm-hmm. so enjoy while last well, yeah. people yeah and uh thank you, Daniel, and thank you, Paul, for joining me.
1: <laughs> Thanks for letting us be here. yeah, he's got the right response, yeah
0: <laughs> and thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you all next time. Goodbye
2: Bye-bye. bye bye. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We Listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.